Hello and welcome to Home to Her, the podcast that's dedicated to reclaiming the lost and stolen wisdom of the sacred feminine. I'm your host, Liz Kelly, and on each episode, we explore her stories and myths, her spiritual principles, and most importantly, what this wisdom has to offer us right now. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, it's Liz here joining you from Central Virginia and the unceded ancestral lands of the Monica Nation. And oh, goddess, do we have a good show lined up for you today. So I started this podcast in February of 2020, right about the time that this mysterious new coronavirus was showing up in international headlines. Um, And I feel like that pretty much set the stage for the last two and a half years of hosting the show. And, you know, to deal with all the madness in the world, I have turned to the sacred feminine, but also with gratitude to my guests on this show and their wisdom and their unique and varied understandings of her again and again to help me navigate my way through what feels like ever increasingly chaotic times. And let me tell you, we're going to do that again today. In fact, I've been wanting to have my guest on the show today for some time because I feel like her wisdom and expertise and just her energy in general is exactly what we need to help us figure out how to survive amidst the breakdown that we're seeing all around us. She's even got a name for these times, Tower Time, drawing inspiration from the Tower card found in Tarot, which is a card of crisis, destruction, and liberation. And I am certain we'll probably explore that more once we get going. But let me go ahead and introduce her to you first. H. Byron Ballard is a ritualist, teacher, gardener, and author of multiple books, including Stobbs and Ditchwater, a friendly and useful introduction to Hill Folks Who Do, Earthworks, Ceremonies in Tower Time, and Seasons of a Magical Life. Known as Asheville, North Carolina's Village Witch, Byron specializes in folk magic and folk ways of the surrounding Appalachian Mountains, where she and her family have hailed from for four generations. Byron is also a senior priestess and co-founder of the Mother Grove Goddess Temple, a nonprofit church with a focus on the many forms of the, the divine feminine. Her work as a pagan priestess has her regularly performing rituals and ceremonies for locals. And if you joined me for the Revelry Autumn Equinox celebration back in 2021, you might recognize her as our presiding priestess and ritualist for that event. And Byron is joining us from her home today. Byron, thank you so much for being here. It is a pleasure to be with you. Hmm. Well, I have so many things that I want to cover and talk to you about. Um, and I have to make sure to, um, that I may, you know, I, I also feel like this could be a personal conversation about, you know, cause my people are kind of from where your people are from at least a little bit, but I'm going to make sure it's, it's accessible for everyone. Um, but I like to start usually with my guests, just, just getting a little bit of a sense of your spiritual background growing up. And one of the reasons I like to ask that question is I'm always curious if anybody had any exposure, um, to the divine feminine or to anything outside of kind of a traditional Christian framework, especially in the United States growing up. So I'd love it if we could start there. Oh, absolutely. Um, I grew up and this phrase may be familiar to you. I grew up unchurched. My (laughs) father's family were Baptists. My mother's family were Methodists, but at some point my father or my mother got angry with the preacher, wherever they were going. I think they were going to my grandmother's church And they just stopped going. And this, I think, was before I was born. So my brother and I both grew up 
as we call it here, unchurched, Mm. which meant that I didn't go anywhere every Sunday, though sometimes I went to church with my grandmother, which was lovely. I I would spend the night with her Saturday night, go to church with her Sunday morning. My parents would pick me up in the afternoon. And that gave me a kind of a grounding. I, I was joking with some friends. I was just at Pagan Unity Festival in Middle Tennessee. And we were joking that we still knew the Nicene Creed after all these years. And we recited it in the middle of this pagan festival. <laughs> so, so I was fortunate to grow up exposed to religion, but not exposed to the dogma of religion. So I would go to church with my grandmother. I went to church sometimes with neighbors. But, and I, I'm assuming now, looking back on it, that the neighbors were trying to get us right with God. So they would take us to church with them because we didn't have a church home. Um, And then my grandmother enrolled me in a parochial school. I went to a Lutheran school from kindergarten through the sixth grade. So I had that exposure to things like the Bible, which I know better than most Christians do. I was also exposed to the concept of missionary work as an exciting adventure in other countries rather than the oppressive thing missionary work actually is. Right. And on Wednesday morning, every Wednesday morning, we had chapel. Chapel was always somebody from the mission field coming to tell us about the cultures of Africa, Asia, South America. So my notion of what religion was was really skewed by that. It seemed like it was almost like a diplomatic service of the Christian church that they go to these cool places and meet these cool people. And why, look, this is the tusk of an elephant. And this came from Rhodesia. So I I grew up kind of with with religion all around me, but not in me, if that makes sense. And I grew up buck wild in what I call now uh, West by God Buncombe County. So I had a lot more freedom of certainly than kids do now. And that took me up the mountain that took me out into the woods so that I spent so much of my formative years alone, climbing the mountain, exploring all sorts of things, um, drinking water from creeks, uh, running with wildlife, <laughs> you know, all that kind of weirdly feral stuff um, that, that took I when I look at it now it took the place of traditional religion for me so my religion was oh boy I'm going to go out in my overalls with peanut butter and jelly sandwich right here in the front bib and I'm going to go up this hill and I'm going to go on that old logging road and I'm going to stop and eat my sandwich right here where the cows drink water and then I get to see the cows so religion for me was bound up in the physicality of the land base that I was living with at the time. And because of that, I think of myself as someone who has been a lifelong pagan, though I wouldn't have known the word for it then, and a lifelong animist, because everything to me at that time was in sold. I can remember being, I don't know, five or six years old and, uh, and doing beans with my mother and my aunt. And a bean fell off out of the colander, I guess, under the table. And I kept looking at it and 
I knew that that being was lonely because it wasn't with the rest of the beans. And finally, I got down off the chair, crawled under the table and found all the beans that had gotten dropped, not because it was an efficiency of food preparation, but because I thought they would be lonely down there when all the rest of the beans were on the table. Mm. So it was a kind of uh, sweet and childlike animism that I still have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, well, first I want to reflect on the de-churched or unchurched. I, I didn't know that term, but what it made me think of is that in my town where I grew up, there was always like the first Baptist church. And then if you got mad at the first Baptist church, you just went and founded the second Baptist church, which is down the road. <laughs> and so sometimes it'd be like, well, I don't like what they're saying at the first Baptist church. So I'm going to switch now and I'm going to go to second Baptist. Or usually you didn't have a third Baptist. There would be something else, you know, like a right. re- revival life Baptist or whatever, but uh, you yep. just kept swapping them out. And so you found the right one, I suppose. I, I love to make my Baptist friends angry by expressing that Baptists are just like Wiccans. There used to be, there was no central authority. I mean, there's a Southern Baptist convention. Now everybody's lockstep with that, but they didn't used to be. It was like, that was some faraway entity that didn't have any real, real power over anybody. And if you didn't like the color of the carpet that the preacher's wife picked out, you were just as likely to take half the congregation with you and start a new church. And I said, that's just how covens work. You You get ticked off at what the high priestess is doing. And you go, you know what? time to go. I think I can probably do just as well myself. (laughs) And and it makes the Baptist crazy. It's like, well, we don't have a central authority either. We can do whatever we want to do. Just like you. (laughs) Just like you. Oh, I love it. That's amazing. You Baptists are just like a bunch of Wiccans. Isn't that funny? (laughs) (laughs) Never funny to them. Oh my gosh. I I love it. Um, (laughs) Well, and I was going to ask you too, I think or maybe the fact that you were unchurched and it just seems like you just went to, you know, you went to church here and there, you know, it's interesting. It's sort of fun or people took you along. Did you ever, did you feel the disconnect from what was happening? Like out here in the natural world with your peanut butter and jelly sandwich and the beans and the cows drinking the water and what was happening inside the church or. No, because what happened inside the church was like anything that happened inside. It was like none of my concern, mm-hmm. you know, so you go inside and you do that. That's okay. But it didn't, it didn't touch me either way. I remember being curious when I was in maybe the seventh grade, sixth or seventh grade, and I was exposed to Dallaire's mythology books. Okay. And thinking, well, why are those gods always referred to in the past tense? And the God of Sunday school is always alive, is always a living God. Why is that? Huh? I wonder what that means. Well, I mean, ultimately, what it means is to the victor go the spoils and that the winner writes all the history books. That's what that means. But I still fight about that in modern pagan culture when people refer to a divinity as so-and-so was the goddess of whatever. And it's like is Mm -hmm. present, present Mm -hmm. and uh, and accounted for. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, and speaking of the goddess too, then I'm I'm also curious at what point the, well, and I'd like to, I, I, I've now started asking all my guests the language that they prefer to use. I say the sacred feminine. Um, so, you know, goddess, divine feminine, sacred feminine, whatever language works for you, you I'd like to hear you tell me, but you know, what point she showed up in, in your life and became part <laughs> of your practice? 
I, I tend to use the phrase of the divines. And for me, that is goddess. But I do a lot of interfaith work. And to even make that plural makes a lot of interfaith people uncomfortable. Mm. So rather than, and, and the word goddess will make their hair catch on fire. So, so many interfaith organizations will give lip service to their diversity, but their diversity really is a whole bunch of different kinds of Protestants. So, but when we get down to cases, when we start talking about the differences in religions, because interfaith, much of it is based on the idea that we all have these rivers of spirituality and they all lead to the same source, but some of the rivers are different. Some of the sources of water are different. And to say the word goddess, it makes people nuts. They go, well, but I mean, I'm, I'm a liberal Presbyterian, and to me, God has no gender. And, and my response is, well, then why do you use the male word for divinity to express your divinity? Yeah. Um, so I like to use the word goddess because it, it inspires them to think that there might be a different way of looking at the divine. But I also like for them to know that in my world, the divine is plural. And for some people, that's like many facets of a beautiful stone, but the stone is all the same thing. But I am what used to be called a hard polytheist. So I believe these are all these non-corporeal beings are with us and uh, we have a relationship with them. And for me, they are all female. And Mm. that is not a political thing. People will say, oh, well, you just came of age in the 70s and you're just being a radical feminist. Well, I mean, I'm that too. But in addition to that, I have never seen the divine as anything but feminine. In all the permutations of what feminine is or female is, but I have never, and I have tried to see the green man or Kernunos or Apollo, and I just don't see them. They don't, they don't show up for me. Yeah. And I'm not saying they don't exist because that would be ridiculous. I'm saying that for me, anytime I encounter the divine, that divine is female and, Mm -hmm. and incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. So I don't see a language sort of, Oh, hi, I'm here to just be your sexual playmate (laughs) divinity. I see divinities that are here to change the way humans interact in the world and with the divine. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I've been been doing this a long time. I came from, I think part of it is I came from a fairly matriarchal family. So the power base in the family was always with the females. Mm. Um, And I'm the oldest child. So, I mean, that I'm sure all of that factored in, but when, And I know exactly when this happened. I was in the fourth grade and I was introduced to the idea of Athena. And Athena is a gray-eyed goddess. Mm -hmm. She's a goddess of wisdom. And I was the smart kid with the gray eyes. And she was a daddy's girl, just like me. And those two, three three things came together. And I went, oh, Athena then. She's my goddess. Mm -hmm. And she was in in such a light gentle way that it really pushed me into the world of non-Abrahamic religion in a way that felt light and easy. And it has been that way for me ever since. Mm, I love that. I love that. It's so funny. I'm 
I've actually thought about how, because I think the Greek goddesses were the first ones that I was introduced to, too. However, I remember their stories and I was annoyed by them. They were always like arguing with each other and fighting. And I remember just being like, really? That was all y'all do? Like, I don't know. You know, I, I, and of course, later, much later, I've, I've, <laughs> I've, I've heard more nuanced versions of those stories. I know mm-hmm. Athena's roots are much older than Athena as well. Like, you know, she connects back to powerful uh, goddesses, you know, that precede her. Like, I know all that. But, um, but at the time I was like, Y'all are like a soap opera bunch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and wasn't that a clever thing for the patriarchy to do? Oh, yeah. To give us a bunch of arguing goddesses who only use their power in vengeance over over uh, being slighted by their mate. Yes. Yeah, so that's all goddesses do. You know. Yes. You know how they do. Yeah. Yes. Even having that's Athena a- born out of the head of her father right. i mean the symbolism right. is so obvious right of yeah. course, of course yeah. you know the control it's and finally obvious yeah. however if you have not been there yet i highly recommend going to the parthenon in tennessee and nashville oh where there not. is a there is a statue of Pallas athene and she holds in her right hand winged nike and the nike in her hand is six feet tall oh, so wow. she's enormous she is as we would have seen her in Greek and Roman temples. Oh, wow. And the first time I saw that, I literally fell to my knees weeping. Because mm. it was astounding to think about what we as goddess-loving cultures yeah. have lost. Yes. So there's only this one place, and it's a tourist attraction. And yet, they tell me, because of course I had to ask questions about it, they tell me that every day people leave food and money and flowers at her feet. Mm. and and her toes are almost as tall as I am. She, I mean, oh, wow. she's enormous. And and they gather up the flowers and they take them to local nursing homes and children's hospitals. And they keep the donations to keep the statue up. And I don't know, I don't know what they do with the food, but but people make they make offering to her. Mm-hmm. So they don't just come there to see this astounding feat of engineering. They go there because she is a goddess. Yes. A goddess who holds a goddess that is six feet tall in one hand. Oh, gosh. It's, just, it's extraordinary. It's amazing. You're reminding me, too. I had um, Alessandra Belloni on the show back in late 2020, whose interest is in the Black Madonna, you know, of course, of especially of the Southern Italy. And um, we talked about you know, Black Madonnas in the United States and how she wanted to you know, go visit them, create a list of them, do something. I'm like, oh gosh, I'd love to have just a, a good old like American roadmap with the divine feminine map to all the way across the country. Would that be amazing? My gosh, that would be so cool. That would be so cool. Now, now that would be a road trip, right? Yeah. 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 We need to figure out how to do that all and right. film it the whole way. I know. Any Bunch of crazy goddess women. Where are they going now? Yes, seriously. So anyone listening who's got, uh, you know, film background or wants to jump in on that, you can you can reach out to us later. <laughs> <laughs> we'll meet you at the Serpent Mound and talk about the importance of snakes and serpents in female history and mythology. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes. We're uh, on. We're ready. Let's uh, do it. A hundred percent. And yes. <laughs> And for those listening, I, I'm making notes while we're talking to, because I want to make sure I put some of the stuff in the show notes too, if you're not familiar with it. So fear not. Um, okay. I want to, I want to talk to you about this idea of tower time. So I've been reading, um, 
your book Earthworks. And I want to talk about that. I know you wrote it, or at least it was published back in 2018, I think, but it feels, I mean, it's just this whole time period we're in. It feels so appropriate, <laughs> but I want to, I'd love to hear you talk about that term, that tower time, like what that, yeah. where that came from, what you, what you mean by that. It's been so interesting since COVID, I guess, when people, people will say on social media, oh my God, everything is falling apart. Who could have predicted this? And I go, I wrote a book about it in 2018. Yeah. So I've been talking about this since about 1999. Yeah. And, and uh, your listeners will understand when I speak of it in this, in this way, I was having both dreams and waking visions of collapse and of, of tower, a tower collapsing. Well, I've been reading Tarot for, uh, let's say, half a century, long time. And it immediately brought me to that card. And I started referring to the times that we live in as tower time. And what that means is that we have, we have for 6,000 years been dealing with systems like this top-down hierarchical yeah. systems. And you're making a triangle shape, right? For those that are listening. Yes, yeah. I'm making yeah. a triangle shape right now. Yeah. And what that means for us as a set of cultures is that we, we understand how efficient that is. Top-down is efficient and effective. And it's easy to replicate. But in reality, it does not it does not aid any of the people on the bottom of the pyramid who are supporting the tower. Yeah. At several moments in our collective history, there have been times when the tower was collapsing and we didn't do anything but allow it to collapse. And then we rebuilt it and put a different person on top. I know I want to be really clear with people. This is not about men. This is about hierarchy. This is about power over as Rian Eisler defines it. This is about a system that's efficient. And because it is efficient, we look at it and go, well, that guy that's up at the top now, he's a bad one and we're going to have to get rid of him. And we'll just replace him with this really good guy here. Yeah. Yeah. And then we do that and it fails because it's not the person on the top. It's the system. It's yeah. the structure itself. Yeah. And what we have another opportunity to do is to create new systems now as the tower is collapsing, because if we wait, if we wait until everything is in chaos and anarchy and collapse, then we will build back that same structure. And we will think it's better because this time it's round on the bottom instead of four sides. And at the top, there's three people, but the problem is the structure. And we should know that about now, but we are so history blind most of the yeah. time that we assume that we are advanced now. So whatever we do is going to be better. Right. So that's where we are. And um, I have a phrase I've been using called circles on the ground. And circles on the ground are the systems we are creating that are egalitarian, that are wholesome, that are holistic, that honor not only human presence, but human presence in a biosphere that is in free fall almost everywhere. Um, so when we liken it to the tower card in the traditional card that we see in the, uh, weight rider deck, which I always like to remember neither weight nor rider drew that picture. It was in fact, Coleman Smith, who is a woman 
in that picture, there are people on top of the tower. There are people diving off the top of the tower. There are people down below who we need to be at this time are the people that are no longer on the card. They're the people who, as soon as the tower started collapsing, they ran down the steps of the tower. They came out through the beautiful carved wooden door and they went out into the fields and they went out to forage and to figure out organic farming and and animal husbandry that is both authentic and healthy. And that's where we should be. But it is so hard to get people to understand that we are in collapse. Mm -hmm. They just think somebody's going to save us. Yeah. And it's the savior mentality that, again, is a byproduct of thousands of years, a, a thousand years anyway, almost of Protestant Christianity and thousands of years of Christianity that tell yes. us that that life here is unimportant and negligible because we just have to or we just have to deal with this, improve ourselves. And then we go to a really nice place. Well, I like this place. I'm happy with this place. Yes. I'm an earthly being on an earthly journey. And and that is enough for me. Yeah. More than enough. So that's what Tower Time is. And my book is called Earthworks, Ceremonies in Tower Time. And it is half essays on where I think we are now. And I've written several essays since then. So I should do a new edition of that book. And I might do that after I get this new book I'm working on done. But it's about where we are right now. And then the second half of the book are templates of ceremonies and rituals. Because I think one, one way we give meaning to what's going on is by ritualizing it, making wrapping ceremony about around whatever it is and making sure that it's meaningful. Mm -hmm. Yes, I wanted to ask you about that, the role of ceremony and ritual in these times. And well, I just want to hear your reflection on this one. But one thing that I think of with the collapse of the tower is, um, you know, it, it, it consider the utility of the nation state, right? Like, is this a function that we even want to have going forward? Um, do we even need to rebuild something giant at all? Are we just talking about like <laughs> community, like small community yeah. that we're not trying to consolidate into this big, like we are all this thing, then we all agree that we are going to be this thing, which of course isn't real, right? Like we, it, it doesn't, it doesn't. <laughs> no, some rich people agreed on that. And then we all had to follow along or we all chose to follow along. Right, right. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I guess that's the first question, you know, like what, okay, I've got a couple of questions there. Let's go with that one. So where do you, <laughs> I know, where do you see, you know, do you, you got your crystal ball out? Like, okay, we know the tower is falling. Um, what, what comes after? Like what's sustainable? What's doing? I, I, I absolutely can tell you what I think is sustainable okay. and that is relocalizing everything that can be relocalized. Yes. Everything. Mm -hmm. um, I was in a conversation this morning with some friends who had noted that in the past, I think it past two years, an extraordinarily large number of meat processing facilities have burned to the ground. And these are like hmm. big centralized meat processing facilities. Well, it used to be, I mean, I'm not gonna take us all the way back to you raise a pig and you butcher it yourself, though I think that's the wise thing to do if you're eating meat, yeah. is that you should raise your own chickens you should raise your own pig and you should have a cow for milk. I don't have that, 
because I'm on the road a lot, but that is the ideal is that you be as self-sufficient as possible so that when your neighbor needs help, you have a way to help them. But what I am saying is that every town of any size used to have an abattoir so that you didn't even have to take care of that. You could raise the pig and you could take it to be processed. And that's just a small example of what I'm talking about, that we need to relocalize. We need to reinvent the things that we need. And we need to look at what the word need means. So yes, there's a hierarchy of needs. We need shelter. We need food. We need companionship, clean water, all those things. That should be a given. And none of those are a given right now. Right. So if we just start with the hierarchy, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and see that every human has those, then that's a good focus. Mm-hmm. And from there, we have to look at what drives what we were talking about in the pre-show, what drives people to come in and hyper develop certain areas while leaving other areas neglected or undeveloped? What causes that? And how do you stop it? Mm -hmm. How do you stop people eating up a million acres of farmland to put in third and fourth homes for people who already have a primary residence somewhere else? Yeah. How How do you find what drives that? And we know it drives it. Capitalism drives it. Greed drives it. But a culture that shows you your value and worth is in the bottom line of your bank account, which is, of course, a joke because people don't really have bank accounts anymore. But that's what drives it. And how do we change that level of culture? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it is complicated. It's absolutely complicated. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to say too, just related to that. So earlier this week, actually, I took, um, I was part of a chaperone. I was chaperoning, um, my daughter's field trip. She's 10 to, um, the historic colony of Jamestown, Virginia, which I actually have ancestors who passed through in about 1640. I think they, they arrived. Um, so not the originals, you know, but, um, but, and it, you know, they're doing an okay. Well, that's a side story discussion about how they're handling handling our history. I think they're doing it better than maybe they were doing it when I was a kid. Yes, they are but, better. But they one are. of the things they said, yes, is that uh, they, they made it very clear that, um, you know, the conflict that was driven between the Powhatan people that were there and the English settlers is the English settlers that were there. They were not there for religious freedom. They were in Jamestown for gold. They were there to make money profit. And other than um, the lost colony of Roanoke in North Carolina, right, this is the first settlement in the United States was here for greed and for profit. This is our history. It is over 400 years old. And so, and of course, you know, they, in a matter of of, a short few years, they didn't find the gold, but they found tobacco and they realized they can make a lot of money on tobacco. So they start cutting down all the trees, destroying all the natural resources of I mean, within an incredibly fast amount of time. And then when the the Powhatans argued like, hey, whoa, whoa, stop this. They were pretty much exterminated within 40, 50 years or or not completely, but, uh, you know, their numbers vastly reduced and their power vastly reduced. And so I feel like that's part of it too, is that I, I think we have such short memory. You already said this, we're like allergic to history. Like, well, this is our history. It is not like these beautiful, like, you know, Thomas Jefferson and our ideals for all, you know, equality for all. No, this is our history. This is how we started. And I feel like that has to be part of the conversation too, right? That acknowledgement. Yes. yes. 
And, and we have to talk about the fullness of the history and the fullness of the people who came. Yeah. Because yes, I imagine some people did come for religious freedom, but yes, I, I, not enough. Right. Not enough. And the people who came for religious freedom were here for their religious freedom right. and to make sure anybody who was near them had the same religion they did. Right. So it was not tolerance even. It was, uh, it's my way or the highway. Right. And I couldn't do my way back in Britain. So I'm going to go here and it is my way or the highway. Yeah. So that's part of it. And there's also the sense of, and a friend of mine, Patty Grant, who lives out on Kuala Boundary, she's a Cherokee woman. She said the the problem with, and the way she put it was, the problem with you white people is that all of the things you did on this continent were done to you in Europe and in yeah. Britain. Yeah. And you have never acknowledged that. You have never acknowledged that you were colonized and then you became a colonizer. Yeah. And she used that phrase that we hear so often now, hurt people, hurt people. Yes. Generationally abused and traumatized people uh, love to pass on the abuse and the trauma yeah. to, the, to the next group of people they can. And she said, frankly, until you all deal with the trauma that was inflicted on you in, in your ancient homeland, you're not going to be able to really interact with anybody else on the planet. And that seemed such deep and profound wisdom because we just go, eh, you know, Romans, that's okay. The Romans did this. And then, and then it became the Holy Roman empire yeah. and it's just still kept expanding and killing people. Yes. And, and here we are and here we are. And, and another thing she said was, she said, look, if you are an African-American or if you're like me, if you're a Native American, you can point at white people and go, you did this to us. Yeah. But you have to point to yourselves and say, we did this to us. Yeah. And how do you even come to terms with that level of trauma? Yeah. Well, well it's so hard. We've rarely bothered. Right. Rarely. Right. And plus couple that with a religion that's all about the great commission, which is go thee therefore into all the world, preaching the gospel to every right. nation right? and taking them over and making the pray, them pray to Jesus when they already have a perfectly good cosmology. I mean, mm -hmm. all of that is just like layer after layer of such deep, deep hurt that, that getting into your own spiritual right relationship with the planet with the land in which you dwell is always going to be the first step always i was going to ask you yeah you got to come to that place with yourself before you can even begin to talk about it with your ancestors or the people outside that sphere yeah i was going to say oh gosh okay yes and the tower time all the way like right if you yeah. because the things that we're talking about like they need to crumble like oh god they need to crumble but um, the amount of healing and, um, or just even like emotional maturity that I think courage, emotional courage, it takes too to turn and really look at all that, not just walk away from it or be like, ah, nah, that guy did it. It, it wasn't my, it wasn't me. It's not me. part of me. Yeah, it doesn't have anything to do with yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's in the past. I don't know anything to any of that, you know, to, to actually turn and look at that is tremendously hard. And so um, I, I, I wanted to ask, I want to, I'm just going to ask you now, cause I, I, it's coming up for me is just, is, is hope a word that you use? Is that a no. con? No. Okay. No, I don't use it at all. 
Um, Derek Jensen, who is an environmental writer, uh, I mean, that so minimalizes who he is, but we'll, we'll go with that. He had a piece in Orion Magazine, gosh, maybe 15 years ago. And it was on it was on hope and being hopeless. And his position is pretty much my position that if we are sitting around hoping that somebody's going to fix it or hoping something good is going to happen, then nothing gets done. So I I will say like I hope I see you when you're in town next week. That's a that's a hope I can hold on to. But to hope that some outside force is going to fix things, I don't have that hope. Mm-hmm. I have the hope that you organize in small communities and you make a, a circle, you make a ring that interlocks with other rings and they each ring is powerful, more powerful than one person and interlocking rings are more powerful than single rings, but that we have autonomy within those rings and circles. And that's where we have to start. We have to start building literally from the soil up. And from the soil down. Yes. And these are the, are these, and these are the earthworks. These are what we need to, right? This is what you're yeah. talking about in your book, what right? I'm talking about, that's what I'm okay. talking about. So, and I also, I also have a, um, it's not a hopeful thing, but it's a practical thing is that there are so many things happening right now that, that people my age go, I thought we solved that in the seventies. Why? have those laws been stripped away and people are dumping raw sewage into major rivers. How did that happen? So there is a frustration level that we thought we were getting, we were getting to a place that then we could deal with other issues, but now we're right back to woman's full physical autonomy right. with the idea that, that Roe is going to be overturned. Right. So we keep having to fight the same battles over and over and over because, well, for a lot, because for a lot of reasons, and we don't have time for that, but I suggest that we pick three, each individual person pick three issues that are the issues that roil them, so that when it comes across your social media feed, or you hear it on NPR, that you go, oh my, no, no, absolutely not. Pick those three things while knowing that somebody else is picking all the things you didn't pick. So it, you don't, you're not the savior of the world. None of us is the savior of the world. You pick the three things that are, that you are most passionate about. And, and if you can't do three, do two. And if you can't do, do two, do one. And, and there is a, there, there's a level, there are levels of ways that you can be engaged. If the very, least you can manage because your life is full of children and work and chaos and all those things that our lives are full of, then light a candle every morning while you have your coffee and just project into that light a new world that you are helping to create. That's that's bottom line. That's what you can do. All the way up to you take leadership. You are the point person in cleaning up a particular creek. There's, there are many, many jobs and many hands that make light work. So there is always something for someone to do. And you focus on that thing. So right now, because Congress did not act in time, the free lunch for children program is going to disappear. 
Now, these are families that are barely making it, knowing that their kid can eat lunch once a day in school. And these are the programs that send backpacks of food home so the kid eats all summer. So because, because they are so bone idle, because they are so focused on just getting elected, yeah. they can't seem to get off their large lethargic butts and actually look at the issues that are affecting everyday Americans. Yeah. And it is such a simple thing. I feel like if I could be Empress of the United States of America for one week, now I would want six months to prepare, but I'd want one week of absolute power that I could fix it. If you had one week of absolute power, you would go feed and house children. Yes. Feed and house elders. Yes. Feed and house everyone. Quit screwing up the land. Stop, stop strip mining. I mean, we all would have the list of things. You, you would start yes. the, the day at the desk with a huge executive order pile and, and you would just get it done. Yeah. And why it can't get done, I think, is the central frustration of the American people. Is they elect people and they go to represent us and all they do is grandstand and do a bunch of malarkey. Yeah. There, that is my political point for the day. Well, I, I completely agree with you. And I'm, I'm thinking too of, um, I had lots of thoughts coming up as you were saying that. I was thinking of, you know, the, the tower concept where we, we, we are so used to, and I think even, I mean, my exposure to the Bible taught us like one guy, one guy who's in charge of everything. Thou shalt be no other in command, but thou shalt me. have no other gods before me. That's right. Yes. Lord God it, is a jealous God. Yes. And that trickles down all the way and, and gets repeated and embedded in our culture where we think of the savior. Well, then of course, literally there's the savior, right? Who's going to come right. and fix it. And so we we forget that we have we forget that we have power that we have agency that we our actions can do things but i also think that we well and i'm speaking for myself i catch myself in this a lot we can get bogged down in hopelessness because i'm like i'm just one little person i can clean up the stream here i can make sure the kids down the street get lunches i can do that but I can't fix the whole big thing. I can't keep kids in Texas from getting murdered. I can't stop yeah. that personally. Yeah. And you know, like that can really weigh on you, right? Where you're like, how much can I do as an individual? And I think part of that is also that mentality of savior. Oh, I'm supposed to do it all. You know, like, oh, yeah. it's supposed to be you one person. To do it all. Right. You have right. to come up with the plan that's going to solve all of it. Right. Whereas if you notice that the family down the street is struggling and you deliver a bag of groceries to the back porch once a week, that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. And you don't have to make a big, you don't have to be a big savior about it. Like, yeah. oh, I noticed the kids looked whatever. And they were always coming to my house looking for peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. So I'm going to be lady bountiful. It's like right. if you notice that people are struggling and there's one thing you can do, then just do it. Yeah. It yeah. will be enough. There's that goofy thing about uh, starfish on the beach. I know you've seen that where somebody's uh, a, a big bunch of starfish have been washed in because of a storm. And there's somebody on the beach throwing starfishes, starfish back into the ocean. And somebody comes up and goes, yeah, look, there's like 10,000 of them. You're not going to make a difference here. And, they, and the person goes, 
I made a difference to that starfish. Yes. So we make a difference to the one starfish that we can make a difference to. Yeah. And, and when we can do that, when we can find the empowerment in that, then we will start to lose hopelessness and know that I did this one thing today. Yeah. I did this one thing this week and that, no, it's not enough. It's not going to solve all the problems, but you did that. Yeah. You did that thing. I do a, a class called tower time. Now what? Mm. And out of it, it's a discussion that I do at festivals and out of it have come some astounding ideas from people who, who say things like, Oh, we, the four of us live in the same town. We could do like a food drive. And, and this group worked it so that they were going to wear, they were going to choose every week. They were going to choose a different, excuse me, a different color food. Mm. And that's what they were going to collect that week. And then they put all of that together at the end of the month from all their weeks and they take it to a, a food bank and donate it. So they didn't immediately start with, we are going to create a food bank. They immediately started with, when I am at the grocery store, this is the first week of the month and that's my red week. So I'm going to get some tomato sauce. I'm going to get some, uh, some ketchup. I'm going to buy apples. They started right at home, right with themselves. And by the time they finished planning this out, then they decided that they were going to pick out their favorite week of the, of the month. And they were going to wear the, the color of that. So they were like a rainbow gathering of people with all this food. And they were going to go together, collected to the food bank in their lovely rainbow colors with all their rainbow food. And they made it into this incredibly joyous thing. Mm. And, and we can do that. Yeah. We can decide my favorite color. My favorite color is green. So every time I go to the grocery store, I'm going to buy one or two extra green things and I'm going to donate them. Mm -hmm. And there's places, every town has tons of places you can donate stuff. Yeah. You could do that. That's simple. Yes. And most people can afford to buy two extra cans of green beans. Yes. Most people can. So yeah. what if you just did that? Then that means that, that one family eats green beans that didn't have green beans before. Yeah. Yes. I'm thinking, well, and it's, it again, it's taking me back to your book and earthworks and how these like, you know, the small circles on the ground or what, and, and also what we can, what we can reasonably do ourselves. The other thing that I'm thinking of too, that has been a concept that for me definitely came through from reading about sacred feminine traditions is the idea of um, deep time, meaning that our lifespan is, <laughs> kind of laughable in terms of, <laughs> I mean, you don't even have to, you don't even have to look to the goddess. I guess if you don't want to, you can look at the natural world and, um, you know, 2,500 year old trees or whatnot, you know, like right. who, who just giggle at uh, how serious we take ourselves. Right. Um, so that's another thing that, that came up as, as you were talking to is, is that's a reminder that I give to myself that the span of time that we are working with is different than my, my lifetime. Um, if I accept that I'm a being that I, I don't have like a, I don't have like a straight timeline where I begin and I end, I, I reject that, that teaching from uh, Christianity as well. You know, that's not part of my world anymore. Then um, in a cyclical nature, you know, this is a much bigger time frame that we're working with. And 
whatever I get done in this go round is whatever I get done. There'll be more work to do. <laughs> there is always more work to do. Well, and, and we know, we know too much. We have too much information. So, all the time. so true. And, and something else I encourage people to do is to grieve globally, but mm-hmm. act locally. Yeah. So what happened? And I think we all, I can't even mention Texas without bursting into tears. Yeah. I've been crying ever since Uvalde is that yes, that thing that happened was terrible and you donating to whatever might be good, but what's happening locally as far as gu- what are the gun laws locally? Cause they're all different. Yeah. So what does it take to own any kind of gun where you are? Who do you, what gun owners do you know? Um, I, I talked to someone who I was railing against the AR-15s and, and he said, but, but Byron, they're really fun to shoot. They really are just a lot of fun. That's why people like them. And, and from that, I said, well, how about you don't own those? You have them at the shooting range and you rent them like you rent bowling shoes. If there's so much fun and then you can just shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and some 18 year old can't borrow your gun that you legitimately bought and shoot up a grocery store or a school. Yes. How about that? Well, yes. well, this person said, well, that sounds like a great idea, but and a lot of people don't because they don't want any restrictions on that. But look at what's happening, the things that that really, really affect you somewhere else and go, what's happening at home? Because you will be more effective in your local community, whether you're making a donation to local gun, gun, uh, what am I trying to say? Gun uh, advocacy, safety programs. Um, You're going to be more effective at home than you are just writing a check. Oh yeah. So figure out what's happening at home. If you, the, the thing I used to use as an example was the children, uh, the immigrating children who got stuck at the border in Texas and Everybody I know was like, we should just go down there and break them out. And, but we, but we didn't because it just seemed like an impossible task. Well, if you care about what's happening with little brown children, find out what's happening with little brown children in your community. Yeah. What can you do right here? If, if you, if it hurts your heart that children are hungry, are there hungry children in your community? And how can you address that here in your community? Yes. And that way we start to back up from, from being saviors. Yes. And we are taking care, we're taking care of our people right here where we live. Yes. Yes. And then I want to know that, that resonates with me so deeply. And then I want to know, talk to me about ceremony and ritual and how this sort of brings us into this, um, local circle place, you know, for, for, for the, those that, that, that connection doesn't seem obvious. Well, one thing I want to be clear is that ceremony and ritual does not have to be a great big thing. You don't have to gather 50 people together and, you know, dance the spiral dance. Doing that is lovely. Yeah. But if your friend, and this is an example from real life, um, our friend was going to have cancer treatment and we did for her a blessing way, like you do when a baby's being born. And it was a blessing way for her to achieve health. She was going out of town for this treatment. And so we all came together. There were, I think there were five of us and her dogs and cat. 
And we just gave her flowers and we expressed how much we loved her and we poured forth energy for her healing to happen. And it wasn't a big deal. We didn't write out an eight-page ritual. We just came with some flowers and string and we sat with someone we loved and we wished her all of our best. Mm-hmm. And we did that in a way that was ceremonial, but it wasn't ritualistic in any way. And, and I think we miss a bit when we don't ritualize all those passages. It isn't just so many girls in the U.S. anyway, and probably in Western Europe, they grow up thinking that their wedding is going to be the greatest thing. They start planning their wedding when they're like four years old. Mm. But if we, if we did ritual all the time, so you are going into first grade now, and we're going to do a ritual for you as you go into the first grade. And it's your, I mean, we do birthdays. We ritualize birthdays. What if you ritualize when the first tooth comes out? What if you ritualize when, and this is my crone thing. I always said, what if we ritualize the point where we start getting the little cracks here, and then we get the little cracks here, what if we ritualize the point where the two things connected? She's talking about, yes. And for those of you listening, you know, the, the, the well, I don't even know what they're called. Like those lines that appear, you know, where your nose beats down to your chin. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, the yeah. nasolabial folds that yes. come down right at your cheeks from the, the sides of your nose all the way down to the corners of your mouth. What if you ritualize when those connected? And that's when you decided to do your croning. Mm-hmm. It was like, I could be a crone now. Look, I have the official crone lines. What if we did that? Mm -hmm. And everything then becomes not just a celebration, because some things that you ritualize, some things that you you slap some ceremony around are grief related. What if this last two years, rather than hiding our heads and being terrified that we were going to get a disease, what if we had done protection ceremonies and and when our people died and we couldn't attend a funeral what if we held that grief what if we held that bereavement for each other in a way that makes sense rather than well I'm gonna write a check and plant a tree that I mean plant all the trees I got nothing against that but what if we were unafraid to say this hard thing that happened to you was really bad and I am really sorry. And I am holding you in your bereavement at this time. Yeah. What if we did that? What if we honored that grief is another thing we have to go through? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I feel like you're speaking to, or you're making me think of something else that I've just really appreciated about your work. And um, that is the, um, well, I mean, a simplification is not quite the right word, but just the very down to earth nature of it. So for example, one of my favorite things I learned from you is this energy trap with an aluminum pie plate and um, how I love all your, all your, all your magic stuff involves like gummies <laughs> and, um, you know, chocolate coins, you know, all this stuff you can just get at the local <laughs> grocery store, which I, um, but I just, I think it's genius. I, I wonder if you could talk to that a little bit too, because I do think we get in our heads I've got to have a special crystal that, which is also totally (laughs) okay. Nothing against my crystal friends, but you know, like if we think we've got to go mine it from some country, like that's just perpetuating colonial capitalist. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So I I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah. I developed this class and I taught it actually at the last festival uh, called candy magic. Mm 
And it really is kind of a gateway to having people understand that you can have magic all the time, every day. But this way, you're not having to buy a lot of expensive stuff. And you can find these. And I mostly use really old fashioned candies. And and I just say, use this as to hold your intention of your spell word, because it doesn't need to be rhymed couplets. It can be something as simple as circus peanuts, which I love to use this one. Circus peanuts, which almost no one will admit to eating these days is like, oh, those things are disgusting. It's like like eating orange styrofoam. Well, circus peanuts, you use those when it is your circus and those are your monkeys. And you've got to figure out a way to lasso some people in, to invite people to the table that feel like they haven't been invited. I mean, there's all layers around it, but you just use a circus peanut and you can either hold it and put the intention into it and then bury it. You could eat it so that you really take in this thing that you have, you take in your intention and embody it. But for me, and I'm a folk magician, I always have been, is that it's all about having your intention, pulling energy into your body and, and realizing that intention. It doesn't have to be terribly ceremonial. It, it doesn't require a lot of expensive stuff because that's what stops people from doing real magic and having real impact on their lives, on their families' lives and their communities' lives. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and yes, I've learned so much about this from you. So I'll, I'll make sure I put all your books in the show notes too. Um, Cause I, yeah, the, uh, it's just refreshing. It's very refreshing <laughs> to be like, you got a pie plate somewhere, put some, put some salt around it, get, get a little mirror, you're good to go. Yes, I, I love it. I love it. Um, and, it's, and it's fun to develop those things and just put them out into the universe and have people come back and go, you know, that thing with the circus peanuts. Oh my gosh, it totally worked. Totally works. Or right. I have a thing that it's a, a marshmallow hex that, that any of your, and your listeners can find online. And, and, and it was, it was thought out, but it wasn't like, here is a serious spell for you to do. And I cannot tell you how many people have come back to me and gone, that marshmallow hex. Let me tell you who I got rid of with that, who completely left my life because I did that. Wow. It's, it's amazing because it's all about your intention and doing the work to leverage the energy to make the intention work. Yes. And in a way, I feel like this is kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, which is stop putting it outside of ourselves, you know, whether that's like the savior at the top of the pyramid or the special, special stone that we had to save a lot of money to get, like stop putting the, 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 um, the agency outside of ourselves. Cause we yes. do have it. That's a good yeah. way to put it. Yeah. Um, do you have a couple more minutes? Cause I have like, I I, I, I okay. Do. Okay. Um, I, <clears throat> I had, I have two more questions for you. I feel like I could talk to you all day, but I had no, I have two more questions that I really wanted to cover with you. And one of those, and we were talking about this a little bit before we got on, we were actually recording. And one of those questions to me, like, I really appreciate how you have, for me, kind of helped me think about my relationship with my own ancestors who are from the hills of Tennessee. And, um, you know, in, in this reality right now, I haven't had the best relationship with for a variety of reasons, but most of them are passed on now. and And you've helped me kind of think about how to forge relationships with my ancestors. And I know, um, a lot of 
your work is tied to place as well, right? Like where your people are from. So I guess maybe that's a kind of a twofold question is like, okay, working with our ancestors, especially when they're sometimes jerks. And second of all, how about for people who have really felt like to save their souls had to get away from that place, you know, because those real life people who have not become ancestors are, are not supportive. Like, how do you kind of find your sense of place and you're working with your ancestors when we are, are also acknowledging all the messy realities of what a lot of us have, have to deal with? I know it's a big question. It is a big question. I'm going to break it down a little bit. And first I'm going to say, never feel guilty about boundaries. We are the worst at setting boundaries and keeping them in this culture because there's always wiggle room. There's always some, well, but they can't help it because blah, blah, blah. So I want to say setting boundaries is good. If you have to set boundaries with your family, do it because it will save you in the long run and it will save you sleepless nights and it will save, it will save you being angry and hurt and regretful. So number one is that. Number two is we we used to have ancestor practice in the West and in Western Europe. And that was taken away from us. Like so much was taken away from us. Yeah. So uh, we were tribal people. We look now at native tribes here and indigenous people in lots of places and we go, oh, see, but that's tribal. That's good. To be in a tribe is good. Well, we had that and that was ripped away from us. So then we decided we got to this country and, and there was like this concept of a melting pot. We were just going to mush all of our, our cultures together and hope that we come up with something. And what happened is we washed all of our cultures out so that there are people now who have skin the color you and I do, very pale, who feel like they have no culture yeah. because it was intentionally, again, ripped away from us in this country. So that's the second thing. We used to have ancestor veneration. So we're reclaiming that in the culture. I tell people when you are starting that path, the first ancestors to start with are people that you actually knew who have died and people that you actually knew that you loved who have died. So don't go to the problematical grandfather who's always touched you in the wrong places and don't go to the great aunt who used to always yell at you and and spank you. Go to that that great uncle who taught you how to milk a cow. Go to that grandmother who always made your favorite Sunday dinner when you came to visit and who was unabashed in their love and admiration and respect for you and was proud of you all the time, go to that ancestor because you already have a relationship with that person and start small, start by maybe putting up a little display with ancestral pictures on it, photographs of that. Let's use the grandmother because that's the one I always love to use. I was very close to my grandmother. So have a picture of your grandmother, offer her a cup of tea, offer her um, some good thoughts, some memories. And, and slowly walk into ancestor veneration. Because ultimately you want to have a relationship with these spirit beings that is beneficial for both sides because they want to hear from you. They want to know that the bloodline has continued. Hurrah, that's their big thing. It's biologically driven. They want to know that their names will be said down the generations. 
So, so that's the first thing. They want you to do, it is important to assume they want you to do well. All you need to do is that. You don't need to dig into the problematical ancestors. But I also want to say this. The more we know about the study of epigenetics, the more we know about the trauma that gets visited and revisited and revisited down generations. And yes, uh, I had somebody say, that's not a science, it's junk science. Well, I will tell you that epigenetics has gone a long way towards healing a lot of people in looking at their genetic line, at their biological family line. So that's another thing to think of is that we are now right now in a place where we can begin to look at what happened to some of those problematical ancestors and know that it was a direct result of where they lived, who they were, who they were in relationship with. And we can begin the process, not of forgiving, but of understanding how culture was different then. And this, and this, behavior was considered okay when right now we are appalled by some of those behaviors. So that's another thing to consider with ancestor stuff. And the other thing to remember or to know is that for many cultures and some of the Irish cultures are like this, there was the understanding that when you make the transition from matter to spirit, that you retain, basically retain your personality but you have more awareness of the things that you did that were wrong, that were ethically wrong, incorrect. And you have regret for those things. So that when we talk about doing more than just having a, a, a beautiful uh, bone china cup with tea for your grandma, but we want to go to our grandma to say, you made it through the depression. How did you do that? Because we're hitting food shortages and the supply chain. How did you do that? And to listen with your mind's ear for how she succeeded. But in addition to that, sometimes when you go to the problematical ancestors and you can understand where they came from, not forgive, because I'm not a big believer in in that kind of forgiveness, blanket forgiveness, because I think there are things that are done to us that are unforgivable. And we don't have to keep a relationship with that being, whether they're alive or dead, if they've done something that heinous. But when we can understand <clears throat> that, that that man who left his family in the lurch and went halfway across the country and started another family in Oklahoma, that he had some interesting skills that you might want to understand. And those skills were he was, he was uh, able to disappear. He hmm. was able to disappear off the census. We never saw him again. And we find him then through weird ancestry DNA stuff, but he just disappeared. So what if you want to disappear? What if you want to disappear from the stalker who is stalking you? Then you go to that problematical ancestor and say, how did you do it? Mm. How'd you do it? And you get the answers there. Now you might not want to do it the way he did it, but he knew how to make himself invisible in the landscape and start a whole fresh new life. Mm. And you might need that information someday. But don't start with those ancestors. Start with the ones that you know and the ones that loved you already because that's going to be an easy, easy transition. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, so much sense. I love that. Hmm. So much good food for thought. I have one more more thing I wanted to ask you to just speak to. And um, 
because it really, it, it was very powerful for me when I was reading it about, it, it was in Earthworks and you were talking about the idea of going to ground, remembering that we are, you know, warm animals at heart and, you know, sometimes that's what we need to do. So I want, I just, it really, especially when times are so intense, it, it really spoke to me. So I wonder if you could describe that a little bit sure, more by that. Sure. It's one of the Tower Time essays and you can find it in Earthworks. It's also on my website, in my blog, uh, going to ground in tower time. And it's about acknowledging that sometimes the hurt and the weight is too much and you just need to step back just for a little while. And when we think about those aforementioned circles that we are, when I do full and dark moon circles, I say that we stand shoulder to shoulder and hip to hip and calf to wheel. But sometimes there's going to be someone in your circle who can't stand, it's, there's just too much. And it is our job to hold them up and maybe do their work while they rest. And it is vitally important for all of us that we practice the kind of self-care that we talk about all the time, but don't actually do. So when we are feeling frazzled at the end of the rope, the edge of the world, knowing that it's time to step back, to regroup, to ground, to lick our wounds, whatever that is. Know that there's somebody who's going to step in and is going to hold you and is going to put their arm around you and go, you know, here's the shoulder. You get to cry on it. Here's this ear. If you got to say some stuff, I'm going to hold that for you. And to be there for each other and for us to know that there's somebody that's going to be there for us. And that's hard. Yeah. Because we have been trained, in trained for so long to be individuals. So now look at me, I'm tough, I'm strong, mm -hmm. until an illness knocks us for a loop and we literally cannot do anything. And our body goes, well, so I told you you needed to rest. I gave you every inclination, every indication that you needed to do that, but you're not going to do that. So here comes mononucleosis. Enjoy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. totally. Because our mm -hmm. bodies. As much as we want to be spiritual beings on a spiritual journey, we are animals. Mm. We're animals. And sometimes animals need to rest and hibernate and lick wounds and, and all of those things. We, yes, you can draw energy into yourself to use and not, not disrupt your life force. But if you're not drawing that energy in to tend to yourself, yeah. then what happens is we have this well in our bodies and it just gets lower and lower and lower and we don't take time to replenish and suddenly we really want to help our sister who is in a world of hurt and we got nothing the well is not only empty it's dry on the bottom yeah. and and instead of helping that person that we desperately want to help because we love them we have to turn that love on ourselves and help ourselves to refill the well. Yeah. And that is such a hard one, such a hard one for people to do. Oh, yeah. Yes, so much so and so important. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Um, Byron, I feel like I could just keep talking to you all day, but um, if <laughs> <laughs> well, we can do this again sometime. I would love to. I would <clears throat> absolutely love to. What are you working on these days? What do you got coming up? I am working on a book for Llewellyn. 
and it doesn't have a title yet. You know, that's how it works. I turn in the manuscript and then we'll work out a title, but it's about just what you were talking about. Simple, practical magic. Mm-hmm. It's about putting magic in your everyday life, using it all the time to disabuse everyone of the idea that there is mundane versus magical. Nothing is mundane. The entire earth is enchanted. Everything about it is enchanted. And if we don't see that enchantment, that is our loss. And that book is due July 1 to the, uh, to the publisher. And it's almost sort of almost done. Um, Will be by then for sure. And I've got a a goddess theology book that, um, that I'm not sure when or how or any of that, but I've started working on that. And then I'm in festival season. So I'll be doing festivals right through the beginning of November. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Well, and if people want to learn more about you, your website is myvillagewitch.com, correct? And I will put that in the show notes as well as all your, all your social media stuff. And um, yeah, thank you so much for joining me and being in conversation with me. This was, um, I was really looking forward to this. This is wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, I was too. I really was. And we, we should do it again. And you and I could just have a phone call. It doesn't have to be a podcast. Well, I, I want, I want to say yes to all the things. I want to have you come back and talk about your next book. I want to, I want to have phone calls with you. I want to come hang out with you on your front porch. Like I want to do all the things. Absolutely. You just can't hang out with me until November. Fair enough. Fair, <laughs> fair enough. Got it. Um, well, and thanks to all of you guys too, for listening as always, if you like the show, you know what to do. You can subscribe, you can give it a really good review. You can tell all your friends about it, do any and all of those things. And until next time, be well, take good care of yourselves. I'll talk to you again very soon. is hosted by me, Liz Kelly. You can visit me online at hometoher.com where you can find show notes and other episodes. You can read articles about the sacred feminine and you'll also find a link to join the Home to Her Facebook group for lots more discussion and exploration of her. You can also follow me on Instagram at home to her to keep up to date with the latest episodes. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you back here soon.